Hello and welcome to Engineering Social Change. Uh, today, uh, Neve was talking to Mairead Enright from Birmingham Law School. Neve, I was listening into the chat. It's a fascinating talk. Um, how did you get on with Mairead? Oh, yes, we got on very well. Uh, I really enjoyed um, our, my conversation with um, Mairead. Uh, and Wright, who's a reader in feminist legal theory at Birmingham Law School. And really, we talked about, I asked her basic questions about, like, what is feminist legal theory? How does it differ from ordinary legal theory? And what we talked a little bit about the feminist um, judgments project, and particularly the Northern Irish one. So it was really fascinating. I learned an awful lot today, John. Yeah, I mean, I found the idea of, like, feminist legal theory to be very interesting because from a very like simple point of view, maybe a simple-minded point of view, like we all experience the law and like, you know, maybe your bike gets stolen or uh, you're buying a house or something like that. And, you know, the common sense idea is that the law is just like a logical thing. You know, it's a thing that exists where, of course, you need to protect people from harm or you need to have some kind of something to be administered in an efficient way. And I found the idea that you can approach the law in a much more kind of philosophical way and the idea that the law ultimately has roots in philosophy and politics and values to be very interesting. Yes, and I think that was the most interesting aspect of it, that, um, you know, the non-inevitability of what the law could be, but drawing attention to the fact that the content isn't a given, that it really, it relates to existing social, economic and political kind of power structures and therefore law does have a structuring effect um that that and that's what feminist legal theory really draws attention to um it says well law isn't just about the you know the legal rules and precedent uh, it's it's about the content it's about um looking at people's lives uh, more closely uh, with um, honesty and integrity really trying to draw in their experience um looking at the private sphere and i suppose um, looking at the effect of the law on people's actual lived lives. So, you know, and particularly giving voice to women. So these are some of the technologies that feminist legal theory uses um, to, I suppose, um, uh, question some of the, um, I suppose, reasoning and the impact of, of the cases. Yeah. And I mean, the discussion of the cases are fascinating because again, like, Again, sorry, no criticism of law, but like maybe some people think it's a bit kind of like dry and dusty, you know, but like it's so real. I mean, in terms of the effect that it has on people's lives. And as you said, in the private sphere, like it's it's very intimate, you know, like that it's it's hugely important. And again, I mean, what you're saying makes total sense, because when we think about like 20th century Irish history, I mean, we know the effects that the law has had on really shaping the nature of the family you know i guess kind of sexual sexuality um freedoms around sexuality control of women's bodies all of these things that it's it's really fundamental and like it's so important to ask these questions yeah and the feminist legal project um yeah is this idea that you take cases that were decided that had a big impact on a particular area and you go and you um, you rewrite the judgment from a, using legal uh, feminist legal uh, technologies, and sometimes that results in maybe a different outcome, or sometimes it results in the same outcome but different reasoning. 
but uh, it can open up, I suppose, um, new concepts and ideas that could then be used in later cases, um, I suppose, to reorient the law and to uh, provide a decision that's based on reasoning that's less structuring our, our reinforcing of patriarchy and sort of um, stereotypical gender roles. Um, so, for example, you'll see that in um, Mairead's discussion of um, the McGee case, where she talks, she, when she rewrote that judgment, she had came to the same outcome, but um, um, had a different reasoning. So instead of providing the rights to the family, um, privacy um, as a sort of communal thing, she uh, re uh, jigged that around to giving it a personal right, which would then allow for um, women's, you know, to have more um, autonomy over their reproductive lives. And, um, you know, so it's something as simple and basic as that. I personally found this inevitable or this um, fascinating um, idea because it proves to me that, you know, of the non-inevitability of the law in terms of what it can be and, and what it might be and how it can change. So, yeah, absolutely fascinating um, conversation with Marie today. Delighted. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it is. It's really, really interesting. So I think we should let the listeners enjoy it and um, roll, roll, roll the interview now. So thanks very much, Neve, and away we go. So today we will be discussing what it means to be a feminist le- uh, lawyer. Uh, we'll be examining feminist legal theory and also looking at the Northern Irish Feminist Judgments Project. And to do that, I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, Mairead Enright, who is a reader in feminist legal studies at Birmingham Law School at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Mairead's Mairead's key research interests relate to feminist legal studies, the law and religion, and she's particularly interested in how patriarchal legal and religious structures can be resisted and changed. Mairead has published widely in these areas, and she is a co-director of the Northern Irish Feminist Judgments Projects and a co-editor of the book Northern Irish Feminist Judgments, Judges' Troubles and the Gendered Politics of Identity. To get started, um, I'd really like to uh, ask you a question which is a little bit personal. Um, how did you first become interested in studying gender in the law? Um, I guess probably when I was doing my undergrad, sort of my undergraduate law degree, in, which would have been in Cork, um, a while ago now, actually. Um, and, you know, we would have done this compulsory course called jurisprudence, which is a particular kind of legal philosophy or philosophy of law. And uh, there was a tiny little bit on feminism in that course. I think maybe we would have had one lecture or half a lecture on it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I was very interested in that, um, especially because some of our lecturers were feminists, although they weren't necessarily and labeling themselves as such or teaching dedicated courses in it or anything like that. Um, And yeah, I was just kind of taken by this idea that there was another way to look at law um, and that there was a way of looking at law that maybe uh, centered women's questions in a way that I hadn't seen happen in the other courses that I had taken. And that's not to say that I necessarily identified in any deep way as a feminist at the time, um, but that it kind of just sparked my interest as something I might be interested in pursuing in the future. Um, and then I think, yeah, I only kind of got into it as um, an academic pursuit, I think, when I started working at Kent Law School, um, which is where I was working when we did this 
uh, Feminist Judgments Project in Kent um, was one of the places in the UK anyway where feminist legal theory had been taken really seriously for decades um, and everyone was doing some kind of element of feminist legal theory and we were teaching courses that were focused on gender and the law to the to undergraduate students and so it was a kind of a different environment and there was an opportunity to yeah pursue that in greater depth. It's so interesting. Thank you. Yes, I can see. I can see. There's a lot of people who've worked in in uh, Kent Law School and mm-hmm. since moved on who, who have done some really interesting work. Like yeah. I think you've done some stuff with Sinead Ring and Sinead, yeah, yeah, and a few other people. Yeah, so that's great. And um, yeah, I can understand as well that it was probably just a tiny little glimpse in your undergrad, but at mm-hmm. least opened up your mind. Um, yeah, I guess. Um, and you know, if you could explain for someone who doesn't really understand it, because I think. I'd be one of those persons in the sense that it took me a long time to really understand what being a feminist lawyer, like what that means or bringing, you know, feminist legal theory, like the different techniques and approaches. Mm. I know you did mention like reading women into the law, like their yeah. experiences and things like that. But yeah. if you could explain that, it would be really helpful. Um, I think when I was, you know, studying jurisprudence as an undergrad, I think we were told there were four kinds of feminism and uh, four, or four kinds of feminist legal theory. And I honestly can't remember what the four kinds are. Um, that's not how I teach it now. You know, like you have to pick a particular school uh, of thought and you, you know, you kind of stick to it. Um, I think for me, uh, feminist legal studies um, is about taking a certain set of theoretical tools that may be particularly relevant to women or non-binary people or um, trans uh, folk, you know, but taking those tools and seeing how they can enable us to understand all kinds of legal questions differently. And those tools are kind of many and varied, right? But they might include things like um, an awareness of gender as a power structure that has um, informed how we do law. Um, They might include things like um, attention to the private sphere, so attention to the parts of our lives that are um, perhaps considered subordinate to the market or subordinate to politics, but are nevertheless very important to most people's everyday lives. Um, it involves paying attention to relationships. It involves paying attention to sex, um, to family making, to kinship making. Um, and it also involves paying a lot of attention to exclusion because, of course, gender norms have been one of the ways in which we kind of decide who fits and who doesn't. Um, so, yeah, I guess for me, feminist feminist legal theory and feminist legal studies is um, a toolkit. And it's a toolkit that isn't necessarily directly taught as part of the traditional law school curriculum. So, yeah, for me, feminism is a, is, a, is a different lens on the law and one that pays attention to gender in different ways. Thank you so much. That is, uh, that <laughs> makes huge sense to me. And um, I suppose I would echo what you say. My undergrad law, um, I guess, I did jurisprudence as well and all the rest. And you have a certain view. You think law is all about the logic, mm-hmm. you know, and it's about learning about logic and you know, applying that, learning the rules, you mm. know, and you, you kind of think it's very much taken, like, you know, the content of it is nearly taken for granted. It's somehow wrapped mm. up in those rules, but we don't really pay attention. And this is the thing that I find really exciting about the feminist projects is that it opens up this idea. It's it, the, the lack, the non-inevitability of what the law is. Absolutely. That's, yeah. I, I think, um, I guess when you're doing 
when you're doing your undergrad, you know, just wrapping your head around this particular way of thinking, like, you know, thinking like a lawyer or whatever is almost challenge enough, right? Um, and the kind of getting your head around the rigidity and the structure of the this, these, you know, traditional modes of legal reasoning is a really significant challenge. And you are, you know, when you eventually, when you're finished with it and you look back, you realize that you have been taught to kind of bend your brain in a very particular way. And that takes a lot of effort. Um, and I think some people, when they're teaching law, would kind of say, well, look, the students have enough to be getting on with learning how to analyze a legal problem within these particular structures without adding in all of this feminism, right? Mm. But when I look back on the aspects of law and learning law that I found terribly confusing, I realized that for me, it was the abstraction from any discussion of social, economic and political context that made it so difficult. Mm -hmm. So my kind of standard subject that I've always taught everywhere I go is contract law. And, uh, you know, contract law is, um, you know, it, because of its origins and so on, I always kind of think of it as like like a little set of perfectly formed Lego bricks that kind of connect together. You know, it can be very rigid and very, it, it does, it's, it, its main function in the curriculum is to get you to bend your brain in that kind of particular way. But as I teach it, and as I've started importing more and more social context into my teaching of contract law, I find that it makes much more sense to students and it makes them better lawyers. Like, for example, um, you know, the doctrine of consideration makes much more sense if you know where it came from and if you know how it has been applied and if you get a sense of why it suddenly became so abstract and rule bound in the 19th century when perhaps it wasn't when it was a social convention 200 years before. And feminist legal studies can do that for us as well, right? Family law, divorce law, um, the law around children makes much more sense if you understand what patriarchy is, right? And mm -hmm. the ways in which we divide up money when a marriage breaks down make much more sense if you add in a feminist theory of what counts as work that enables you to earn money and what is simply taken for granted within a particular understanding of, you know, the gendered marriage, right? Um, and it also, you know, makes you much more alive to the possibilities of reform. You know, we don't live in the same kind of society now in relation to gender that we used to 20, 30 years ago. And so sometimes, you know, I teach family law as well. And I have students who might think, well, you know, many countries have same sex marriage now. So that's kind of queer liberation done. Right. But if you have an understanding of, you know, who were the gay critics of the idea of mm -hmm. same sex marriage at the time these things were being debated, what was their argument are, were they right? Were the things that they predicted, are those the things that have come to pass? What are the remaining exclusions of same-sex marriage? You know, I think it's very enriching for students and very empowering as well, right? If you present law in the traditional way of these are just the rules and your job is to apply them, that's much more disempowering for students than if you say these, this is the contingent arrangement we've come through, come to through this very political process. These were all the other ways it could have been. This is what feminists have been saying about this. Um, it, I think it empowers students much more to kind of pick things apart and come up with their own solutions. Um, so just like pedagogically, I think the idea that like feminist legal studies is this added extra and you can be kind of doing without it. Or if you're a bit odd or if you really want to first, then maybe you should read some of this stuff. I think it's actually 
better integrated as like a core part of the pedagogy. I think it works quite well when you do it. But I think it's quite radical as well, Marie. That's the thing that uh, like kind of almost shocks me and kind of puts me mm. a little bit at, at, at all because like, you know, if you're acknowledging that like, you know, that there could be other ways, mm. that there are other ways, that the ways that we're used to approaching it are structured by all these kind of power dynamics, by gender, by race, by class, then you're throwing what, what you're throwing you're kind of challenging the sort of authority of law in a way that, you know, um, yeah. So to me, it's, and you know, the whole, you, you, you've written in places that, you know, the whole idea of, um, yeah, um, like law reform, altering legal discourse, where does that start? Does it start at law school? Does it start in terms of the people's education about what law is and how it should be practiced? Mm. You know, and because, you know, people are not going to introduce new and different and innovative and off-center and like gender informed arguments into court cases if they didn't come through, a, a, yeah. you know, a, an education that kind of opened them up about the fact that this is possible. Mm. I think, um, I mean, I think we have, we have had sort of times in Irish legal history when radical ideas suddenly became accepted, right? So one of the things we talk about in the Feminist Judgments book is a kind of a standard discussion in constitutional theory around unenumerated rights and where did these, where did that idea come from? And although now it's kind of bread and butter, first year constitutional law at the time, when people like, you know, Donald Barrington, for example, talks about, um, you know, or talked about his early career as a barrister, um, being kind of dismissed from the bench uh, or, you know, for even suggesting that rights-based arguments should be centred in constitutional discourse, right? So um, we have had moments in Irish law that we tend to kind of forget about, but where radical alternative ways of thinking about core ideas gradually did become accepted. Um, so I don't see why feminist legal theory or a gendered approach to law should be very different. Um, I know that uh, Rosemary Hunter, who was one of the people who started the English Feminist Judgments Project, but who's Australian herself, um, she has done some interviews with, um, you know, sort of the generation of female judges in Australia who would have been coming through law schools in the 70s and 80s and who would have been exposed to the teaching of feminist legal theory there. And she has kind of done some interesting work on the extent to which they have been able to incorporate those lessons into their, you know, their judicial work. Um, and, you know, we kind of have some role models now, right? You know, Rosemary as well and, and Eric Rackley have done some interesting work on people like Brenda Hale, right, who is, would be considered you know, very openly feminist in her politics and then kind of looking at the very different ways in which she can incorporate those politics into her judgments while still writing very persuasive mm -hmm. mainstream judgments, you know. Um, can you see anybody in the yeah. Irish context that's practising right now that you would regard as maybe... One of, one of the things we did do, um, you know, so... Maybe maybe if I start slightly should, differently. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah maybe it, I should go back and ask you. Ask no, 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 that's right. Um, one of the things that feminist judgments projects will usually do at the start is they'll kind of identify some techniques for making your judgment feminist, right? And there are lots of different techniques. Um, one is to sort of think differently about the facts. So rather than anonymizing and abstracting from the facts in your judgment, you pay attention to the details that you think are important. 
Um, another is uh, paying attention to broader evidence that will put the judgment in its full social context. Um, another might be taking, you know, you know, sometimes in relation to legal, okay, le- particular legal techniques, there will be kind of a liberal and a more formalist approach. So an easy example would be, you know, you're interpreting a statute, are you going to take a purposive or a literal approach to, to this part of the statute? Mm-hmm. And just to slow you down yeah. there for a sec, Mairead, yeah. the difference between a purposive and literal would be... Oh, um, I suppose literal is very language focused, like what do the these words mean from a dictionary <clears throat> perspective? Whereas a purposive approach would be, okay, what was the social problem that Parliament was trying to solve at mm. the time they passed this legislation? And then if you could read the clause or the section in two different ways, you choose the one which is more likely to achieve that purpose. But of course, interpreting the purpose is political, right? So, so if you kind of think of feminist judging, not as something that women judges do, or not as something that judges who are involved in feminist causes do, but as a set of a set of techniques that have feminist mm-hmm. origins or feminist effects, if that's the approach you take, then you start to see little bits of feminist judging everywhere, right? So mm-hmm. um, I certainly would have noticed feminist techniques being used by judges who I would never in a million years describe as feminist, right? So, for example, one one uh, one example we used with students a lot was judgment by, by Mr. Justice Peter Kelly. Um, and it was a judgment about um, a young woman who had died in care. Um, and she, in the course of the various hearings about her life, she had tried to send him a letter and the letter had been found in his office. And he read that letter into the record um, at the end of, uh, I can't remember actually if it's at the end or at the beginning of of one of his judgments. Um, And so what he was doing there, although I would never again, like never describe him as a feminist, but what he was doing was he was taking that particular piece of evidence out of the story of this vulnerable person and he was allowing her voice to speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And that is a technique that feminist judges use. It's not a technique that ordinary judges use very often, but it's nevertheless one that could be appropriated for a feminist practice. Um, another example, uh, sorry, uh, might be, remember um, the, the Fleming case, the case about the right to die. Yeah. And um, because of how um, ill she was, um, it was difficult for her to see the judges from where she was sitting as they were sort of pronouncing judgment in this case. And so they all came down from the bench and sat at eye level. Now, that's not a written technique of judgment, right? But it is a very important kind of symbolic moment of trying to undo a little bit of the hierarchy involved in judgment. And, you know, you know that, that very powerful kind of metaphor of looking somebody in the eye as you. And mm-hmm. for feminist judges, we would say, you know, one of the key techniques of feminist judging is, you know, trying to reflect a kind of empathy or honesty in what you're doing. And so that symbolic moment was feminist in its own way, even if the judges maybe weren't thinking of themselves as feminist. And even if, you know, I personally might have liked a different outcome or a different judgment. But the, so they're like, it's quite minor moments matter as much to feminist judging as, you know, the sort of the maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg kind of model of feminist judging where you're looking for this perfect conceptual judgment, you know. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. That's 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 really interesting. And I guess, you know, I had so many thoughts in my head when you were 
speaking there, but I think what might be handy is to maybe just give people um, a quick um, sort of background on what the feminist judgment projects were about, like where they started mm-hmm. and what was what was different about the Irish and what was the approach of the Irish, okay. Northern Irish one? Okay, so the first one was the Women's Court of Canada, um, which perhaps gets less uh, coverage or whatever because they didn't write a book. Um, they had a special issue of the journal. Um, and then the next one was the English project, which is Feminist Judgments from Theory to Practice. And that was... Um, I suppose the difference between the Women's Court of Canada, which is kind of the inspiration and feminist judgments from theory to practice, is that feminist judgments from theory to practice, uh, well, had much more funding. That's probably the major difference. And because they had much more funding, they had more time to kind of explore what the techniques of feminist judging were. Mm -hmm. And so there are some introductory chapters in that book which set out, you know, the kind of tricks of the trade that you can use for rewriting feminist judgments and connect them to the thinking of like major feminist legal theorists. So that book then has become the template for later feminist judgments projects. And different projects have, I suppose, been more or less um, faithful to that model, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And so it was, I mean... Between the English project and the Northern slash Irish project, there was the Australian project and the New Zealand one, I think, was going on at the same time as us. And as we were finishing up, there had been some projects in America and the Canadian one was getting going again. There were some there was an Indian one. There were some there was a pan-African one. And so the colonial and post-colonial dimensions of this method Mm. were becoming really apparent. There had been some side projects as well, which were less about the jurisdiction and more about the area of law. So there was one on international courts. uh, There was one on medical law, children's law. Um, But for the jurisdiction-based ones, it was important that the English project had somehow become kind of the centre of the wheel and all of these spokes were radiating out of it. Um, And so colonial questions were emerging in the projects, right? So in Australia, one of the questions was, well, for um, feminist lawyers of Indigenous origin or who are working with Indigenous communities, what's feminist about using the common law as your uh, source of judgment? And for us, because we had decided it was going to be an all-island project and, you know, all-island Research projects are in law anyway, you know, where you have people from both jurisdictions mm-hmm. are really rare, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really wanted to center that question of jurisdiction, identity, the post-colonial. Um, we thought, you know, we thought the book might be out in and around 2016, which was obviously a significant um, period. Um, the reason we called it the Northern slash Irish project um, was we wanted to get around that sort of constant stumbling block of what are we calling these jurisdictions? What are we calling these countries, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why it was it was the grappling with those kinds of questions um, that led us to place this kind of focus on identity um, and, and identity broadly understood, mm-hmm. but obviously including questions like um, national origin, whiteness, religion, um, 
defining yourself in relation to past conflict or negotiating that definition. Um, And it was interesting as well because we, you know, started to, not that we were uncovering them for the first time, but we needed to inform ourselves about what the, um, you know, for two jurisdictions which often define themselves in terms of difference, what have the commonalities been in women's experiences in relation to law, you know, post-1922? And that was really helpful, you know, and I think that um, in terms of sort of consolidating a network um, that had something relevant to say to people who are studying law now, mm-hmm. I think that focus was really was really helpful. And I think um, like I really enjoyed reading the bit of history around at the start yeah. of the book about, you know, the legal profession, you know, mm. after partition in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. One of the things I noticed, which isn't really central to what we're talking about today, but was that there, there, there seems to have been a tradition in both jurisdictions for um, attorney generals to become judges. Mm. And we won't dwell on that. Yeah. But even if we could talk more, um, just even like, because I don't, I don't know if people would really understand what the, what the concept is, so that you, mm. you, you look at the concept behind the feminist jud- judgments projects, you know, from the point of view, the very basic concept. Like, mm. So you take a, a, a series of um, judgments, and essentially you rewrite them using mm-hmm. feminist methodologies. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's basically, that's um, yeah. yeah. And, and that's where this whole idea of, um, yeah, like using the technologies of a feminist, um, of feminist legal theory or, you know, and potentially, um, you know, changing the discourse, showing what's mm-hmm. possible, mm-hmm. all of that, extremely interesting. And, and so you were saying then, um, you know, that you looked at national identity, identity building yeah, um, and the role of law in that. And then, of course, the, the gendered, the, uh, how that was so gendered. And you looked at mm. that from, um, so from the Northern Irish and the Irish perspective, and you, you chose cases that kind of highlighted that, that whole um, development. And this, this is really fascinating. You talk about something called um, involuntary patriotism. Mm. Could you tell me a little bit about that, please? I don't think that's my phrase. I think so. One of the things we did was, I mean, I wrote it, but I. I Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. It's it's William Walls, isn't it? It's William Walls. Yeah. So we we had some workshops where we, um, you know, so we had these workshops where we would be, those of us who were rewriting judgments would present our drafts for feedback and commentary. But we wanted to encourage the people who were rewriting judgments for us to think in a kind of interdisciplinary way. So so Mm -hmm. at each of these workshops, as well as presenting the drafts, you would have presentations from, you know, sociologists, geographers, historians. But also um, we brought in some artists and some um, poets and novelists. And and William Wall is a a poet and novelist. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this essay. uh, which he read at one of the project workshops called Four Women Who Died for Ireland. And um, given the time that we were working at, one of the women or the inspiration for the essay was Savita Halepnavar, right? Mm-hmm. And so that idea of the involuntary patriot, the idea that women's bodies, women's lives, all of those dimensions of private life or family life that are of such interest to a feminist judgments project, that law had placed boundaries on those lives in ways which required women to make certain choices that supported a particular national or nationalist identity. Um, And certainly, and, you know, lots of this stuff will be in the public domain in the next couple of years. Um, One of the things that's striking about 
the, well, what became the Republic, what was first the Free State and then the Republic, um, is how quickly the regulation of family life and women came to the fore as, as, as a policy priority for successive governments. And this is quite common in post-conflict societies. You know, you don't have very much economic control. Your infrastructure is weak. There are very few places where you can put a stamp on what this new country is. And so women's lives and, and family life and sort of personal morality do become significant, um, significant issues. Um, and Ireland, you know, in the 20s and 30s, you know, think about what else is going on. Yeah, I think sometimes we exceptionalize Ireland. But if you think about who else is in power across Europe at the time, Ireland wasn't the only country to be preoccupied with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Perhaps what's a little bit odd about Ireland is how long it lasted, right? <laughs> yeah. And so th- at the time that we were writing, um, you know, all of the stuff that was getting going around repeal and so on, there was a lot of focus in public discourse around you know, the power that particular kinds of laws have at a kind of body, at the level of the individual body Mm -hmm. and understanding where that power had come from and how it had been sustained and what that had to do with law. So I think maybe if we had been doing this project this year rather than then, we might not have been so taken with this idea of involuntary patriotism and where did it come from, right? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, totally very centenary much, and looking at the yeah. foundation of the state, but almost like it's actually so powerful though, because mm. I do think like, you know, having studied law, you look at the natural rights, you know, Catholicism, mm. the preamble, the constitution, and, you know, and even for example, one, one case that really stood out for me was the Norris case, mm that I remember reading that that when I was a student, like over 20 years ago, reading that judgment and kind of going, oh my God, I just couldn't get over how close-minded that, you know, the, the decision was. And, you know, so these things have impacts. Like I suppose mm-hmm. as a young gay woman, it was impacting me at the time mm-hmm. that I felt, you know what I mean, it directly affected me, not just from a legal perspective, it was really small-minded, but, um, and I guess... I was interested then in like, you know, because part of this project and in the introductory chapters you talk and in your chapter, Marie, you talk about, you know, the fact that um, Catholicism was an important um, judicial culture, you know, that Mm -hmm. it it impacted the culture and that, you know, it impacted how the the role judges played in policing women's bodies, in Mm -hmm. upholding these laws that actually, and I guess maybe, maybe one of the judgments that you redrafted which I thought was absolutely fascinating, was the McGee versus Attorney General, 1974, mm-hmm. um, about the 1935 um, Criminal Law Amendment Act that outlawed the importation of contraceptives. Mm. And um, so that decision was actually um, allowed. Um, so it, it declared that um, 1935 law unconstitutional. And But the in your redrafting, you significantly, I suppose, you came to the same decision, but for different reasons. And I guess that's what I'd, I'd really love if you could talk us through that, because yeah. I loved reading the different perspectives. Um, yeah. It's very powerful. So there's a few things going on there. I mean, the first thing is to say, you know, maybe, um, yeah, the way I rewrote that judgment was very much informed by what else I was doing at the time. So at the time, 
uh, I was finishing up a project with a colleague, my colleague Emily Cloath, who's still a Kent, um, about access to contraception during the period or the different periods of criminalization of, of, of access to different contraceptives. Um, and so we had interviewed people who were, you know, the forerunners of organizations like the IFPA. So people who were supplying, it sounds silly, but genuinely smuggling condoms over the border, supplying them illegally by post, running clinics that were very much at the borders of illegality and so on. Um, and that I found really inspiring, um, you know, talking to those people um, who were now sort of in their 70s or older mm-hmm. was just absolutely fascinating to me because their experience of what was happening in law and politics around the time of the McGee case um, was so different to anything my parents would have said, you know. So the ways in which they were sort of defying um, a church that I think I had un- up until then understood it as almost impossible to defy. You know, I mm-hmm. found that really inspiring. And one of the people I interviewed, well, two of the people I interviewed were Mrs. McGee, May McGee and her husband, Shay. Um, and I think they have since been the subjects of a documentary on RT television. So everyone can see how just magical and glorious they are. But um, I had never seen any uh, coverage of them. And so, yeah, I I really wanted in rewriting that judgment, I was sort of thinking the whole time of them. Um, So I think, you know, when when you said we chose judgments that grappled with that question of identity, but we didn't. We chose our judgments at random. And then we found this as a theme that kept coming up in everything we were writing. Um, And so I hadn't planned to write McGee initially. I had planned to write a different judgment, which now escapes, escapes me. Um, But I think it was going to be about, um, it was about um, Nate Mary. It was about the the Catholic obligation to raise your children as Catholic, regardless of whether your spouse was. And then um, Maeve O'Rourke, who was also involved in the project and who works for Justice for Magdalens and the Clan Project and, and, and those and she said, oh, you should rewrite McGee. And I kind of said, well, why? Like, you know, McGee was decided the right way and why would anyone care? And she said, oh, yeah, she won, but only because she was married. And I thought, oh, yeah, actually, right, okay. So when I rewrote McGee, I think I did two or three things, major things. The first one was to decide it, um, decide it the way Norris was decided as a matter of individual privacy and not marital privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was actually really important for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it struck me as odd that uh, in the context of Norris, some of the same judges who decided McGee could find a right to individual privacy when it was a man and how a man had sex, albeit in this very stigmatized way, mm-hmm. but definitely couldn't do the same thing for a woman. You know, if we were going to talk about reproduction and reproductive life, then this had to be a decision you were making in tandem with your husband. And May McGee's husband was lovely and is lovely. And they're, you know, and I knew from meeting them that they are absolutely devoted to each other. You know, they're like marriage goals, like they're just gorgeous together. But not everybody's husband was gorgeous. And I had was also interviewing people who had been reproductive rights activists at the time who told the most horrific stories of just the kind of really just bodily degradation that women were subjected to. Um, And so it was just so obviously unacceptable 
you know, thinking about feminist tools like, you know, paying attention to relationality, how power plays out in relationships. A concept like marital privacy can be exercised, of course, in a cooperative way, but it need not be because if the bigger, stronger person, the wage earner in the family uh, chooses to um, exercise their power in a, a, an oppressive way, um, then that's then that's it, right? There's so the so women's bodily dignity and autonomy could not be protected or kept safe within a purely marital patriarchal structure. So that's the first thing I did was just to say, no, it has to be individual privacy, and this is why. And to kind of say some of the things that it was possible to say in Norris, and that the same judges found it possible to say in Norris later, but bring mm. it forward. Um, and that's a, a side point, actually, is with feminist judgments, you know, you want them to be plausible because the point is to show the cases could have been decided differently. If you go off on a total um, tangent, then you're not proving that, you know. Yeah. So for me, rehabilitating arguments that were later made in Norris was was really helpful. Um, the second thing I did, which the original judgment doesn't do, um, Mrs. McGee's lawyers had argued that her right to decide whether or not to use contraception um, was relevant to her freedom of religion under the Constitution, her, 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 her rights of conscience. And um, for reasons that escape me now, the Supreme Court at the time said that that was not the case. And uh, you, Mr. Justice Walsh said this had nothing to do with freedom of conscience. I think it was because we often tend to think of freedom of conscience, freedom of religion in Ireland as an institutional right. So it's something that religious orders and priests and bishops have, and it's not something that the laity has. Mm. And uh, I thought that was ridiculous. And because, again, I was doing all of this research on condoms and the law, um, I was kind of aware that, you know, in and around 1968, debates around Humana Vita and so on, lots of people had actually hoped that the Pope would make a different decision about the Catholic permissibility of contraception and that the Irish state would follow. And, you know, there were good Catholic moral and theological arguments for allowing people to use contraceptives, particularly people like Mrs. McGee, where her health, you know, was contingent on being able to control uh, how often she became pregnant again. And those arguments have been dismissed. And that was a particular exercise of patriarchal power. So for me, saying actually, no, a woman who is Catholic and who in good conscience, having reflected on it, decides that she must you know, this was the theology at the time. It wasn't thou shalt not use contraception. It was you may, you're sinning, but as long as you have made that decision in sort of, you know, reflectively thinking about your reasons for doing so, you go to your confessor and so on. It's not the worst thing in the world. It's not great, but you certainly shouldn't be going to, you know, you certainly, the criminal law isn't necessary um, in this area. And there were, and I knew from talking to people who had been involved in the IFPA, that there were plenty of priests who took that position at the time. So I wanted to kind of say like freedom of conscience is about dissent as well as about enforcement of the views of the hierarchy. Um, and other than that, I think like the thing about the judgment is, um, you know, Mrs. McGee kind of told me that when she was in court that day, she, she, um, has had uh, she had severe hearing loss as a child and just persisted into adulthood. And so she was in the Supreme Court in the Four Courts buildings. She couldn't really hear what was being said about her. 
and somebody kind of nudged her and to tell her that she had won. Um, and she and her husband told these stories about, you know, the very intimidating and difficult experience of you know being on the stand and being questioned and berated by lawyers for the state about the most intimate dimensions of your family life, you know. And um, I wanted to kind of show that the law did not require any of that, right? That, that you could come to exactly the same conclusion with something a bit more um, autonomy oriented. But I suppose the last thing was, um, I was very conscious because of what was happening around repeal and I went on to become very involved in repeal, um, was like McGee was the reason for the, for the, the, the pro-life amendment campaign. You know, they thought that McGee was the thin end of the wedge. And after McGee, women's right to use contraception, the next logical thing would be right to an abortion. Um, And so I wanted to kind of write a McGee judgment that would have uh, solidified that right a little bit more clearly and put some of the arguments into sort of constitutional discourse that had to wait, actually that still have to wait to be made. We still haven't had a judgment in Irish law that says, you know, a woman has a right to determine if she's going to be pregnant or not. So I did want to kind of foreshadow some of that stuff. And yeah, it's really interesting. Once you start thinking about those techniques and seeing where they lead you, um, fine, the outcome, maybe that's the question you wanted to ask about, why does discourse matter? Like how we get to the conclusion matters, what politics we reflect, what concepts we center in getting to the conclusion matters, because in a system, in a precedent-based system, right, the decision is almost less important than the reasoning. And so rewriting McGee or rewriting judgments like McGee was an opportunity to introduce new reasons. That could That's be it. Reasons. It's building blocks, isn't it? Yeah. And that, I, I loved um, the focus on the, the individual right to privacy and marriage because... Mm. You know, it, it, you know, it focused on, you know, I mean, it's women that it's treating them as individuals because equality isn't always necessarily the right thing. I mean, a woman is the person who carries a child and who risks, you know, potentially it's, it's a risky enterprise and therefore should have special consideration, not special consideration, just consideration, like a right to decide over their own body. Yeah. So thought that was really amazing and yeah. now that might be a good example of the limits and restrictions of feminist judgments right in that i don't necessarily think a privacy based model a, you know a privacy focused rights based model is the way that you win abortion access i think we've seen for example in the united states that that model doesn't go far enough but if my job was to rewrite a judgment that was written in 1973 within irish constitutional structures then those kind of liberal individualist rights-based tools were the best thing I had, right? And and some of the arguments that I make in that judgment about, you know, the risk that the woman takes and the risks that the woman bears alone, you know, the calf, the dropping a calf in a field, all of that kind of stuff, they're all phrases taken from Shannon and, you know, Iraq, this debates around the time. That's not, you know, the dropping a calf in the field thing was something that was said about Mary Robinson. It's not something that I would you know, that wasn't a metaphor that I use often, right? But it's, but so the point with feminist judgments is that there there are limits to what you can do. You do have to work not only with these feminist tools, but with the existing tools of the law at the time. And so you do find yourself saying kind of weird, masculine <laughs> kind of stuff that might not be what you would do in the rest of your work. But nevertheless, 
you it's 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 enough for what a feminist judgment seeks to do it's just so fascinating and i'm really grateful that you've taken the time to come and talk to us and to explain it and to really bring it alive for us and yeah and i really hope that you continue in this work and because it is you know it, it it's it seems to me there's so much more that can be done you know um yeah and i just want to say thanks Mairead. um thanks for having me and um yeah best of luck with the rest of your work and uh, it's been fascinating and i look forward to hearing um what your next steps are yeah, absolutely thanks a million